the things you'll see when you hike in the Swiss Alps. If you time it right, you can even watch the cows being paraded down from their grazing meadows. They've got their bells on, and really the bigger the bell is, the more prestigious that cow is. They're all pedigreed. For warmer vacations, Kiki Deer says you can't beat the Philippines. It has some of the best diving in the world. Uh, you can go swimming with whale sharks. You can trek in age-old rice terraces. You can even hike up active volcanoes. And Terry Tempest Williams explains how she bought oil leases on federal land near her home next to Arches National Park at rock-bottom prices. We purchased them at a discount of $1.50 an acre. If you can imagine that, our public lands for sale to lease oil and gas for less than a cup of coffee. What's Utah worth to you? Let's explore together in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. It's looking like the government has declared war on America's public lands. At least that's how Terry Tempest Williams sees the Trump executive order that rescinds federal protections in her home state of Utah. She tells us what's at stake and the innovative ways she became what she calls a conservation buyer to prevent drilling near where she lives just outside of Moab. We'll hear her story in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And a British travel writer tells us why the Philippines is one of her favorite places anywhere in the world. We're at 877-333-7425. If you only ever get to visit one place in Switzerland... I'd recommend the Berner Oberland. It's the high country around Interlaken with some of the most famous mountain peaks in the Alps. There are dozens of hiking trails that take you through glacial valleys to enjoy wildflowers and waterfalls galore. It's my favorite place for a taste of traditional Swiss mountain living and some of the most stunning scenery you'll ever see. When he lived there, Don Kimura wrote a detailed guide to the hiking trails of the Bernice Highlands. He's here to help us get ready for an afternoon hike in the mountains. Don, welcome. Hi, pleasure. Don, I understand you know the trails of the region so well because you actually lived there for 10 years in a little village in the area. I um, decided to go traveling in 1986, and uh, I made Switzerland my base, and in fact, a little town called Gimmelwald. Hmm. I ended up staying at the youth hostel there off and on for about three years, and then I ended up going just up the hill and managing Walter's Hotel Mittagorn for about six years. And when I first discovered Gimmelwald, you were already there, I think. And it I was, was uh, still at the youth hostel. You were at the fact. youth hostel, and there was some graffiti on the wall upstairs in the hostel that says, if heaven's not what it's cracked up to be, send me back to Gimmelwald. Yes. And people just fell in love with Gimmelwald. What, what are your memories of just away from the tourism, but just living in this little community high in the Swiss Alps uh, without any traffic or, where almost everybody has the same last name? Well, it was kind of what I was looking for, this little quiet small village Nobody spoke English back there 20 years ago. It's a little bit different now. There's people mm-hmm. that speak English because of, of the tourism that's in the area. Mm-hmm. But it was just a small dairy farming community. The youth hostel run by Lena. Do you remember Lena? Lena. Oh, she was like a human goat. Lena. Yeah. She, uh, she charged, I think, three or four francs for the youth hostel. So people didn't really come to stay for the night or two nights. They stayed for weeks and sometimes oh, months, <laughs> like myself. And you could cook for the price of groceries. It you could a, cook it was for sort of an alpine community. Ten cents to cook, uh, to yeah. cook food. Yeah. And then moving up to Walters, Walters was a, an inexpensive hotel with about 38 beds, but it had a million-dollar view. Oh, Hotel Mittaghorn, a view of the, of the Mittaghorn, uh, and yeah. much more. Yep. When people go to Switzerland, a lot of people go to the famous towns. They'll, they'll go to Interlaken. I went to Interlaken for several years before I realized all the magic is up the hill. 
Yeah. So think of the towns as, you know, they're, they're utilitarian. They're, that's where you can pick up your groceries or, or validate your train pass or whatever. But then you go to the high country and south of Interlaken, which means between the two lakes. So you got Lake Thun and Lake Spitz. Yep. South of Interlaken is a valley and it branches in left and right. To the left is Grindelwald. And that's famous in so many ways. And all the big tour buses go there and there's all the resort hotels. But to the right, you've got Lauterbrunnen Valley. And that's the valley you fell in love with and that I yep. fell in love with. Describe Lauterbrunnen Valley and even the name. Lauterbrunnen could mean Lauter, which means many, and Brunnen or springs or or water sources, and in that valley, you've got over 70 waterfalls that are kind of falling off the sides now, of the cliff. Now, I've, I've driven up that valley in a, during sunny, dry times, and I kind of go, oh, what waterfalls? But then, if you come there after a big rainstorm, it's just thunderous with waterfalls all around you. Yeah, those 70 become hundreds. It's busy in the ski time, and yep. it's busy in the hiking time. Uh, when you're there in the hiking time, you still use all the ski lifts to get around. Describe some of your lift options from the valley floor. There's two ways that you can go on to the, to the one side. You can take a cable car up to Grouchamp, uh, hike or take the train to Murren. And if you want to go up higher, you're going to be taking a funicular to Almontubla maybe or a cable car up to the Schiltorn. Even across the valley, you've got the Jungfrau Yoke. Incredible tunnel through the Eiger all the way up to the top of the saddle below the Jungfrau. Yep. How tall? Do you have any idea how tall that is? How high the Jungfrau Yoke is? is? Yeah. Something like 11,000 11, feet. 11,000 feet. It, yeah. It's above 10,000 because you can feel the altitude. You get a little bit dizzy when you get up there. Nothing to be concerned about. I always feel, feel winded when I go up there. I climb the steps and I just feel like, oh, I got to get in shape. But then I remember, oh, I'm at 11,000 feet. I can cut myself a little slack. Here. Exactly. Yeah, they it have is, it written all over the place. Don't, if you feel like this, don't worry about it. It's normal. It's natural. Just slow sit, down. Sit down and slow down. And then this mountain lift tunnels through the Eiger. It actually stops halfway up the north face of the Eiger. And the Eiger is like one of the ultimate challenges for rock climbers. Yep. And you look out halfway up this cliff. What do you see? You're looking down on the Lauberhorn, which is where they have uh, the World Cup almost every mm -hmm. year. Uh, you're looking out towards Interlock, and so you're looking northward. So you can kind of see the lowlands, and then you can see you can see burn from those little windows that you're looking out. And of. you may not know where to look, but there are probably rock climbers, frozen, hanging on there. Yeah, I was going to say some of them aren't really with us anymore. They're just hanging there and they can't get to them. The they helicopters, it's inaccessible, so they're, they know they're there, but they can't rescue them. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Don Kimura about hiking in the Burner Overland. And in the Burner Overland, you can really experience a lot of amazing folk culture. The traditions survive very well in these high communities, or at least they survive. I don't know about very well. I understand the Swiss government actually recognizes the value of some of these traditional industries and doesn't just let it die the death of the small family farm in the United States, but, but subsidizes it so it's, it carries on. What, what's the case there, and why would they do that? Well, they'd like to have the, the dairy farming industry, for example, to, to continue. It's a tradition. Um, it's a way of life. And there are people that are, many people that are still in the dairy farming industry. But it's not, it's not a living that you can really uh, make a living at, considering the economic situation of Switzerland, when everybody's making much more than a farmer would. So the farmers need to be subsidized. They or, need to be or subsidized. Or their kids will go to the big city and become software programmers. Exactly. So they're struggling, but they're surviving these small uh, family farms. And uh, we can see that business metabolism, and we can actually sleep in some of these places because many rent out beds. Don Kamura is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Michael in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, joins us on the line at 877-333-RICK. He has a question about hiking in the Swiss Alps. Hi, Michael. Yeah, I just decided this past uh, month to take my summer trip to Switzerland, and I'm going to spend a couple days in Bernese Oberland. I'm really excited, and I just want to know 
what are the, some of the best um, hiking trails one can take to get the most iconic view of the Jungfrau, the monk, and the eiger? Uh, that is the ultimate sort of panorama, the eiger, monk, and Jungfrau, the three great peaks. What is it done? The Jungfrau, monk, and ogre. What does that mean in Swiss German? The eiger, the monk, and the Jungfrau. The eiger yeah. is an ogre. An ogre? Yeah, and the monk is uh, a monk, uh-huh. religious monk, and the Jungfrau is a young maiden. So you've got the monk protecting the young maiden from the ogre. From the ogre, exactly. Oh, what a charming, frozen, icy, <laughs> glacier-filled uh, uh, scenario. Now, Michael wants some of the classic views in the Berner Oberland where you lived. For of the eiger, the monk, and the Jungfrau, uh, yeah. yeah. You can get that a couple of different ways. Down in the Lauterbrunn Valley, there's the Schiltorn side, and then there's the Wengen side, or the, the Kleine Scheidegg side. That would um, be where the Eiger, Monk, and Jungfrau is. Eiger, Monk, and Jungfrau right. are really right in front of the Kleine Scheidegg. Right. But you don't have to get the Kleine Scheidegg to get the view of the Eiger, the Monk, and the Jungfrau. It is a fantastic view, and they're right in front of you when you get there, which is taking a train from Lauterbrunnen to Wengen, and then you can continue on by train to Kleine Scheidegg. And that's where the train starts, if you want to, that goes up in the mountain into the Eiger and through the Monk to the Jungfrau Jok. Or you can look at the views, and I sometimes think they might even be better from the other side, uh, the Schiltorn side. In Lauterbrunn, you take the cable car up to Grutschalp, train or walk to Muren. Even just the train rider walking to Muren, you see the Eiger, the Monk, and the Young from well, that, wide open. that train itself, you take the funicular up to Grutschalp, and then this, it's built for the view. In fact, what's the name of that train? The Panorama Fart. <laughs> that fart is the German word for, exactly. for journey. Yes. It's the panorama it's journey. The panorama and, and, journey. And that's the panorama fart train that yep. goes from Grutschalp to Muren. Uh, and just on a sunny day, there's nothing like it. But, Michael, you're, you're going to be there, and you're going to be bathed in views. Everywhere you look, there's views. And, uh, and there's famous views, and there's less famous views. But there's a little place in Gimmelwald, uh, Don, you might remember. I just loved when there was a moonrise going just a couple hundred yards away from Hotel Mittaghorn and sitting on a bench. Yeah. It's like the it's like the farmers in the village placed these three or four benches right there and you could sit there and it's just it's silent. It's twilight and there's a village below you and there's a few farmers doing their puttering around and you know the cows are happy and then you see the moon rising over the peaks. It's just it's something magic about that view. I just I got a lot of uh, therapy out of that view, I think. Yeah. Michael, you got to go over there and check it out. Yep. Hey, thank you. Bye now. The Berner Oberland in the middle of the Swiss Alps is our destination, and Don Kimura is our guide right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Kathleen joins us on the line from San Francisco. Hi, Kathleen. Hi. I'm calling to find out what's the best time to go seasonally for the weather to take the hiking trails in the Gimmelwald hmm. area up there in the Berner Oberland. There's a couple of different months that are really good. I particularly like June, end of May, June, because that's when the flowers are blooming. Uh, if you go in the fall, which is also nice, September, the leaves start to change, and the hillside is, is on fire with color. I like the summer, any time in the summer, for just the reliable weather in the long days and the warmth. August is a very good month. In fact, one of my favorite Christmases ever was in Gimmelwald. It's gorgeous yeah. in the winter. It is gorgeous in the winter, but the hiking is limited. No, there's no hiking. What you do <laughs> then, and I went up with my favorite hotelier, Walter, okay. where you worked, and we went up to Murin, and, and we sled it down on the trail. I did the same thing with Walter. It's beautiful, isn't it? He and, beat me down. And this, this uh, classic old hotelier, he was like a little kid when he sat on his sled. I just thought, here's a Swiss boy at heart forever. He must have been 80 years old when we did this. Yeah, he's 92 now, so. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen, thanks for your call. Thanks. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Don Kimura about the hikes and the culture of Switzerland's Berner Oberland. 
Don, I've always been charmed by the when the cows come down from the high meadow. Yeah. And this is not something that's just in the storybooks. This actually happens. I, no, was, I was just recently yeah. there, and after a long hike, I heard this tinkle, tinkle joy coming down the mountain, and whoa. Yeah. Tell us about how that happens. What's the deal? Well, throughout the year, the animals are taken up to higher pastures so that they can be set free and munch on the, the meadows. Uh-huh. And as the weather starts to get colder, they bring the cows down a little bit by little bit, and eventually they have to bring them back to the to the local town and to, into their barns for, for the winter. And they've got their bells? They've got their bells on, and really the bigger the bell is, the more prestigious that cow is. They're all pedigreed. And not only do they have bells, they have flowers on their heads. Mm. And the, the, the farmers that are bringing the cows down are also dressed in traditional clothing. 21st and, uh, century. It's a procession, 21st just, century. Just like past centuries. Yep. Alive and yep. well. Yep. And we can experience it. Don Kamara, thanks so much, and let's take a hike sometime. High above Gimmelwald. The pleasure. If there was a contest for most colorful nation on Earth, the Philippines might be a good bet. We'll explore the nation of 7,000 islands in just a bit. But first, when the bidding sagged on an oil and gas lease sale for drilling on federal land in Utah, the auctioneer joked, Come on, man, this is a lot of scenery going to waste. Well, writer and environmental activist Terry Tempest Williams was in the room. She explains why she and her husband bid on those unsold parcels and why they created Tempest Exploration LLC as the first energy company devoted to keeping fossil fuels in the ground. The Utah of Terry Tempest Williams. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hiking in the red rock wilds of the Utah desert, you might soon notice an unusual sound. Listen closely, and you may hear mining or oil drilling on what used to be federally protected lands. Or maybe it's just the sound of Teddy Roosevelt spinning in his grave. Ever since President Roosevelt signed the Antiquities Act in 1906 to create national monuments that protect natural and cultural heritage sites across America, there's been pushback from some industrial interests. For the last few years, Terry Tempest Williams has been writing columns in the New York Times and elsewhere about the battle going on in her native Utah. On one hand are her neighbors who support the Trump administration's removing protections on many federal lands, especially at Bears Ears National Monument. On the other hand are those who prefer the type of tourism a quiet wilderness attracts. And note the warning from tribal leaders that thousands of their ancestors' archaeological sites are at risk of now being open for business. Utah is rich with more than a dozen parks and monuments run by the National Park Service and the Bureau of Land Management. When Terry found there were no takers for oil and gas leases the BLM was offering near her home, she and her husband got an idea. She joins us now to tell us about it and to explain why Utah remains such a special place for her. Terry, thanks for being with us again. Thank you, Rick. I always love our conversations. Terry, Utah, you happen to live in a state that has, what, five national parks and seven national monuments, and you grew up there. What does Utah mean to you? Utah is bedrock. It's family. It's where the bones of my ancestors dwell, six generations. I come from a a Mormon family. Uh, My roots for an American Westerner um, who is white are, are deep, and my devotion is is very real. Terry, you wrote that you had a seminal moment as a child at Timpanogos Cave. That's a national monument. What happened? I love Timpanogos. It's a mountain in the shape of a woman. And we are told from the time we have a memory that this is where the spirit of the maiden of Timpanogos lives. 
And every time you drive by from Provo, Utah to Salt Lake, you see her. As a child, I could swear that I saw her breathe. This is a, a story told by Ute people. And I remember a Ute grandmother who I knew as a child told me that inside that mountain was the beating heart of the maiden. So when I was eight years old, our church group, which was Mormon, uh, decided that upon our baptism into the church, we would hike up to Mount Timpanogos and enter Timpanogos Cave. It's about a mile and a half straight up. We were there. I remember these iron green doors. They opened. Hmm. There was a park ranger. We entered inside the mouth of the cave. The temperature dropped. It was humid. Here were these stalactites and stalagmites that registered as teeth. We started walking on this raised path so that we weren't stepping on the stalagmites. And there we walked through this magical, uh, these magical forms called Father Time's Jewel Box, the Valley of Sleep. But I could hardly concentrate. All I could think of is where is the beating heart of the maiden of the mountain? Hmm. In time, there it was, large, wet, huge. I wondered if you had touched it, would it register as cold or hot? I was completely mesmerized, so much so that I failed to continue walking with the rest <laughs> of my group. Suddenly, the lights went off, the door slammed, and I was left in the heart of the mountain with a darkness I have never known. I can't tell you when fear turned to wonder, but what I can tell you is that I felt that beating heart, even as my own. I don't know how long I was there, but suddenly I heard the door open, the light go on, and there was my primary teacher mm -hmm. saying, oh, you're saved. But I wanted to say, you didn't save me, the mountain did. And I think for the rest of my life, I've been trying to find that same experience of being held that closely to that kind of power. And dare I say, love. You know, every time I go into a national park, I, I meet the miraculous. But if I'm honest, I think I'm still searching for that sense of awe and majesty, wonder and fear that I felt in those moments of, of being inside that mountain, next to that heart. You mentioned the Ute tribe. Is that where Utah comes from? It's the indigenous people that lived there first, Utah? Yes, yes. Because that experience you had, it seems like it's almost trying to duplicate an experience Indian kids might have had as they came of age and gained an appreciation of nature. You know, that I don't know. Um, my friend Regina Lopez Whiteskunk, who is Ute, I have so much respect for her sense of circles and cycles in the land, her deep sense of politics and protection. Um, she was one of the members of the Bears Ears Intertribal Commission who has fought so diligently to protect these lands that mm -hmm. are under siege um, by this current administration. And so, you know, I think... Native people, they stay. And that's what I want to model is, you know, how do we stay mm -hmm. and be loyal to a place, have a fidelity to place? Yeah, if, if closeness to the land is, is a good thing, they have an advantage built in it that we can be, I think, aspire to. They also know what it means to have it removed. 
And mm. I think we are just now beginning to touch on what Native people have felt all along um, mm. as we watch our public lands in a move to be privatized, to be sold to the highest bidder. Terry Tempest Williams is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. She writes about the landscapes of her native Utah and her relationship with 12 of America's national parks in her book called The Hour of Land. It's now out in paperback. Terry's also a writer-in-residence at the Harvard Divinity School, and she's been a visiting professor in environmental studies at Dartmouth College. Terry, President Obama set aside 1.3 million acres for Utah's Bears Ears National Monument back in 2016. In February, the Trump administration reduced Bears Ears by 85%. This is now being challenged in the courts. What are your thoughts on this? When you look at laws like the 1906 Antiquities Act that protects these wild lands and cultural spaces, I think it it has helped define who we are as Americans. That was established with Theodore Roosevelt. And I have faith in the open space of democracy and the will of the people. But right now, I would be lying to you if I didn't say that I am concerned Mm -hmm. and, and I am standing with Native people, Indigenous people, and the tribes that we are closest to in Utah, which would be the Navajo, the Ute, the Hopi, the Zuni, and other tribes within the Colorado Plateau are standing on the side of protecting Bears Ears National Monument. Terry, okay, you're talking about the value, the the intangible value, really, of a, of a national monument like Bears Ears. Now, what if I just think, well, there's a real need, energy independence, jobs, the economy. How can you put a, a price on the value of over a million acres when, when I really think it can help us have a stronger economy and, and become energy independent. What's so important about Bears Ears other than what we can mine out of it? It's a great question, and it's one that the Trump administration and Secretary Zinke are asking, along with many of our county commissioners. But I think it's about long-term concerns and short-term gain, I also think it's a myth that's being propagated. If you talk to the communities adjacent to Bears Ears National Monument, and particularly Grand Staircase National Monument, the Chamber of Commerce and the business people there are saying that it is booming, that they have a shortage of labor, that for the first time they have a dentist in town, that they are are doing better with a national monument and park near than they were before. So I think this is a myth. And when I look at what Orrin Hatch is advocating, look at who's paying for his campaign and look at who stands to benefit if our national monuments are opened up for fossil fuel companies. And that's what I think we have to think about. I want to share with you, because I think both these voices are central to our history as Utahns, Bernard DeVoto, who wrote for Harper's Magazine, wrote in 1951 Quote, you had better watch this now and from now on. The land grabbers are on the loose again, and they can be stopped only as they were before, by the effective marshalling of public opinion. We're there. And I love these words of Wallace Stegner that was in the same era, 1955, the year I was born, where he says, quote, it is a better world with some buffalo left in it. 
a richer world with some gorgeous canyons unmarred by signboards, hot dog stands, superhighways, or high tension lines, undrowned by power or irrigation reservoirs. If we preserved as parks only those places that have no economic possibilities, we would have no parks. And in the decades to come, it will not be only the buffalo and the trumpeter swan who need sanctuaries. Our own species is going to need them too. It needs them now. Now that was in the 1950s when Dinosaur National Monument in Utah was at risk and Bears Ears National Monument and Grand Staircase National Monument are at risk. I have to believe that by marshalling public opinion, by people coming forward, those lands will still be protected. Conservation is a generational stance, and that's what I'm seeing now. So it's quite an interesting awareness-raising challenge because even your father wrote, fracking has freed us from the Arabs. I mean, there's this patriotism almost. How do we explain that to a world that sees everything in a balance sheet and bottom lines and in numbers? Well, you can imagine the lively conversations we have around our dinner table. (laughs) And I love my father. There's something very (laughs) poignant about your own flesh and blood seeing an environmental issue differently than you. I've had the same challenge with my dad. You know, and I think each of us do. And it's, we love them and they love us, but it's a spirited conversation. So much so, Rick, that my father accompanied me to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, where just outside the park boundaries, you see fracking, you know, the Bakken oil fields, when my father and I went, um, it was at its boom period where a million barrels a day were coming out, a day. Mm. And we went into the town of Williston. We saw the man camps. My father went up and asked some of the men, who signs your paycheck? And they couldn't answer him. Mm. And he saw that they were completely being used, you know, two weeks on, two weeks off, trading residency in containers, storage Mm -hmm. containers. My father wept, and he said, this is not right. I am all for oil. I've made my living by laying pipe in the ground in the West. I'm proud of the scars I've made on this Mm -hmm. landscape. But the rapidity and the scale that is happening now at the expense of both the workforce and the land itself is not right. That's what my father said after that first statement you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So I think we're changing, and it's a different time We're looking at climate change. Fossil fuels will be part of our history. And so as a people, I think we have to stand up and say who we are as Americans, what we care about, and what we want for the future of our nation and our children. In her book, The Hour of Land, Terry Tempest Williams writes that America is at a crossroads. She writes... We can continue on the path we've been on in this nation that privileges profit over people and land, or we can unite as citizens with a common cause, the health and wealth of the earth that sustains us. She continues, if we cannot commit to this kind of fundamental shift, then democracy becomes another myth perpetuated by those in power. We're learning about the beauty and challenges Terry Tempest Williams finds in her home state of Utah right now on Travel with Rick Steves. There's more on her website, coyoteclan.com. For people who care about the environment, you just lay awake at night thinking, what can I do? 
you actually purchased land in order to save it from drilling. Can you explain about that initiative on the part of you and, and your husband? Yes, it was the quarterly oil and gas auction, lease auction in Salt Lake City, Utah, where members of the oil and gas industry come to bid on leases that then they will develop for fossil fuels. Brooke and I made the decision as citizens to purchase some of those oil and gas leases, which we did. We bought two leases, 1,120 acres on a remnant sale. They were not leases that the oil and gas companies wanted or chose to bid on. We purchased them at a discount of $1.50 an acre, if you can imagine that, our public lands for Hmm. sale to lease oil and gas for $1.50. That's less than a cup of coffee. We were asked what kind of energy we were going to develop, and I said you can no longer define what energy means to us. The energy we wish to develop at this moment in time is the energy to fuel a movement to keep our fossil fuels in the ground. Hmm. Our leases have been denied, The Bureau of Land Management did not give us the leases on the grounds of our intent not to drill for oil. We said that we would drill for oil as soon as science could show us that the oil and gas was worth more above ground than below, given the costs of climate to our future. What we also said is that the oil and gas companies have no desire or design to develop those leases that they've purchased until the price of oil rises. So we feel we have been treated unfairly, and we have appealed the Bureau of Land Management's decision. Our case will go before the Board of Appeals in the Department of Interior. It must be interesting for you, a well-known Utahan, walking down the streets of your hometown, to uh, feel the friendships and the enemies you've made with your outspokenness for the environment. I love my home, and it's worth fighting for, and... I think people know where I stand. There are many who disagree. There are many that don't. And I think it's all part of the conversation. And I try not to take it personally. Mm -hmm. That's hard. But, you know, I look at my father as an example, and we have disagreed on many, many things. But when we bought those oil and gas leases, it cut right to the core. This is how my family's made its living. And my father, you know, said, you've made a mockery of our family. A few days later, when he saw what was at stake and how serious we were and the injustices that were happening, even losing my job at the University of Utah, my father is now the CEO of Tempest Energy Company. It's an LLC that we have formed. So I think we're evolving. We're growing. Yes, it's painful. It's messy. There are costs involved. But This is, to me, what it means to be of place, to stay in a place and carry on this conversation together. It's about listening, even to the land, especially to the land. Terry Tempest-Williams, thank you so much for writing The Hour of Land and inspiring us to learn more about the value of our wilderness. And thank you, Rick, for reminding us to keep our eyes wide open. In the heart of the earth inside of Oakland, Wrinkles are canyons, tears of roaring waters. Children, take what you need. Messages for holy places where summer winds whisper and snow thunders warn. This is sacred ground. Sacred ground. You can listen to Terry's earlier conversations with us about her favorite national parks. 
Look in the Travel with Rick Steves archives on our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. You'll find Terry in programs number 507 and 495. They're from December and August of 2017. We're at 877-333-7425. Or you can write us at radio at ricksteves.com. Travel writer Kiki Deer takes your calls about the Philippines next. Stay with us. Magandang araw. Ako si Clarice Malyari mula sa Maynila, Pilipinas. At naglalakbay ako kasama si Rick Steves. That was Tagalog for Good day. I'm Clarice Malyari from Manila, Philippines. And I travel with Rick Steves. Magandang araw. Ako si Clarice Malyari mula sa Maynila, Pilipinas. At naglalakbay ako kasama si Rick Steves. As a destination, the Philippines often gets overlooked by travelers who vacation instead in Indonesia, Malaysia, or Thailand. If you're looking for white sand beaches, some of the world's best surfing and diving, and encounters with some of the friendliest people on Earth who also happen to speak English, our next guest suggests you should put the Philippines into your travel plans. And there are more than 7,000 islands to choose from. Travel writer and photographer Kiki Deer joins us now from London to tell us why the Philippines is one of her favorite places on Earth. She's written the beautifully illustrated Journey Through the Philippines, an unforgettable journey from Manila to Mindanao. Kiki, thanks for being here. Uh, thank you very much for having me. What distinguishes people's travels these days is experiences. And, you know, there's a lot of great destinations in, in the Pacific Rim that you could visit. Well, what are mm-hmm. some of the experiences that would make the Philippines really memorable for a traveler? Well, there are so many which I think make the Philippines the incredible country that it is. It has some of the best diving in the world. Uh, You can go swimming with whale sharks. You can trek in age-old rice terraces. You can have a look at uh, hanging coffins. If you love beaches, of course, there are plenty of them with more than 7,000 islands. So there are a plethora of beaches where you can relax and enjoy, enjoy the beautiful waters. You can even hike up active volcanoes. So what's that like, hiking up an active volcano? Is that, do you do that on a tour? Is there a regular trail with a, a trailhead and an information uh, center? Or, or what's the experience like? Well, there are over 20 active volcanoes in the Philippines. And Mount Mayon is probably the, wor- the, the most well-known. And it's said to have the world's most symmetrical cone. And you can, you can trek up a number of them. Of course, there are various warnings in place at times, so you need to obviously make sure you're, you're up to date with the current uh, situation. Of course, it's highly advised to get a guide. Once you are in the country, you, you need to have a look at uh, the latest situation and then decide whether it's a good idea or not to trek up it, because obviously some of them being active can also <laughs> yeah. be uh, quite dangerous. <laughs> That's serious business. Travel writer Kiki Deer is our guide to the Philippines right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her book is Journey Through the Philippines. Kiki posts photos of her world travels on her website at kikideer.com. That's spelled K-I-K-I-D-E-E-R-E. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Mark's on the line from Bonnie Lake in Washington. Mark, what's your question for Kiki? Yes, Kiki. Uh, when I was a child, my uh, father was in the military and we lived in the in the Philippines from 63 to 65, and we traveled all over Luzon. We actually went up to the Ifugao Rice Terraces in Banawi, and it was really a, a wonderful trip, and I wondered if you could just tell the people a little bit about the, the Ifugao Rice Terraces. Absolutely. They're actually one of my favorite places in the country. So they are 
they're up in in northern Luzon in the in the Cordilleras region, which is a mountainous region in the north of the Philippines, and they are designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and they were. Uh, they weave around the mountainside and they were hewn out of the, the mountains about 2,000 years ago by the Ifugao people, which is a tribe that lives in, in the Cordilleras of uh, northern Luzon. And it's possible to trek through the terraces and overnight in traditional Ifugao huts, which I think is a highlight of any absolutely any trip to the Philippines. The scenery is simply breathtaking. Kiki, this is the rice terraces of Banaue, B-A-N-A-U-E, is that right? Correct. Now, they've been around for 2,000 years, and they just look dreamy, and it's a reminder of the importance of rice to the, the Philippine culture. I understand locals there eat rice three times a day. Absolutely. It's, it, rice, of course, forms a, is a staple of Filipino cuisine. In fact, more than three times, about five times a day. Even in the afternoon, you know, sort of afternoon snack, rice is also consumed. Even for pudding, there are rice, uh, you know, rice cakes, and absolutely it's hugely consumed along with fish, of course. So five times a day, how, how do they, is it just steamed rice that they would just eat a little bundle of steamed rice or is it cooked different ways to make it more interesting? Yeah, no, it's normally just steamed and then it's accompanied by, it could be fish or, or meat. A lot of meat, especially pork, is consumed in the Philippines and that's probably a legacy of the fact that the Philippines was a Spanish colony for over three centuries and in Spain, as you know, they, they eat a lot of pork and adobo is probably the national dish. And then lechon, which is suckling pig, which is uh, consumed widely at important occasions. So, you know, weddings or celebrations. Because you see these big festivals where they have an entire pig that's been uh, cooked up for the occasion. Exactly. Hey, Mark, thanks for your call. Thank you very much, Rick. Have a good day. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kiki Deer. Her book is Journey Through the Philippines. Paging through your book, it, it's just one thing about the Philippines is just the colorful sort of cultural festival and all of the gorgeous little insights and famously cute primates. Tell us about these little tiny guys with lovable eyes. Yes, the Tarshirs, who are very sweet, very adorable, and you can find them in Bohol. Um, and they're very curious, wide-eyed animals that are one of the world's smallest primates, and they weigh only about 150 grams. They're as big as your, the palm of your hand. They're tiny. And they actually look they look like aliens. Do they run around like squirrels do here where I live or or then do you not, see them in captivity? No, not not really. You sort of you see them a bit like koalas sort of sitting in the trees. They do have quite a high pitched uh, sound that they make. And Kiki, you know, a lot of people would claim that uh, different countries are very hospitable, but it's pretty clear you get a, a very warm welcome in the Philippines. Can you talk about Filipino hospitality? Absolutely. I think Filipino hospitality is one of the aspects of the Philippines that that I probably love the most. I have never on any of my travels, um, and I must say I've been very fortunate to have traveled quite extensively. I've never come across anybody as friendly as the Filipinos. They are the most welcoming, warm people. And as you know, the Philippines is, is quite a poor country, but despite all the poverty, the people always have a smile on their face and are always ready to share what they have with visitors. Kiki, it's interesting that when people go to Asia, they think Thailand or Malaysia or Indonesian. Oftentimes they don't even consider the Philippines. Why do you think that is? Well, that's a good question, and I have to say it still still baffles me. A lot of travelers do end up in Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, so sort of on the main peninsula. But I think the Philippines has always been a sort of extra flight across, and I think that may be one of the reasons why people have overlooked it. Oh, so it's just one more flight away. And it, it is. I mean, if you're already, you know, if you're traveling to Asia, you would, you would fly, for example, to, I don't know, Singapore or Bangkok or wherever. And once yeah. you're there, people tend to travel a lot to the countries by land, whilst, of course, to get to the Philippines, you need an extra flight. 
What about President Duterte? I mean, uh, he's getting, well, he should be getting horrible press. He's just killing people outside of the, the law just for being mm-hmm. related to the, the drug industry there. Is that a concern? For I mean, it's a, it's a horrible thing, and a lot of people would understandably not want to patronize that with their with their tourist dollar. On the other hand, you could go there and uh, you know just help connect that country with the rest of the world through tourism, which is a great secondary value of tourism. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts about Duterte and the current situation and how it might impact a traveler considering going to the Philippines? Well, I think, as you say, there has been quite a lot of bad press on the Philippines. And in fact, there was already quite a lot of bad press on the Philippines before because of uh, Mindanao and regional unrest there. So I think possibly that's actually another reason why people have uh, have been put off visiting. But I have to say that once you are actually in the country, it you don't really, of course, there is crime like there is anywhere, but I never felt any safer than I have traveling in the Philippines. And as a female solo traveler, um, I think that's saying something. Okay, so it's a very big country and there are um, yeah. Muslim sections that are angry and they've got some extremists there that are violent. You've got killings in every country, but there's thousands of killings done by the government to make a real serious uh, point about we're not going to allow any drugs in this society. Apparently drugs has, have been had a, a ravaging effect on the community or I don't know what's driving him. But you're saying as a tourist, you go there and you're you're almost oblivious to that. Yes, absolutely, or at least that's how I felt. But again, the, the areas where there is regional unrest are specifically Mindanao, which is in the south, where it is a bit of a conflict zone because there are various factions that are calling for autonomy from, from Manila. So I strongly suggest, of course, if travelers are planning on going there, then they should check the security situation before. But given that there are over 7,000 islands, and this is just one of them, um, there is obviously a lot more to see. And again, all the places that tourists tend to visit are perfectly safe. Travel writer Kiki Deer is taking us to the Philippines right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She writes guidebooks on the Philippines and other Southeast Asia countries for Rough Guides. And Tuttle Publishing has released her own photo-filled guide called Journey Through the Philippines. Every page is filled with brilliant photos of smiling people and the country's stunning scenery, including its spectacular rice terraces, waterfalls and marine life, and even one of the world's strangest wide-eyed primates found nowhere else on Earth. Kiki, when we think of going to the Philippines, first of all, it has a a huge connection with Spain, named uh, after King Philip II of Spain, the Philippines. It's the only country in Asia colonized by the Spanish. Today, uh, its uh, dominant religion is Catholicism. Uh, The language is Tagalog, but it's also English. What's the language situation a traveler will encounter? Well, I think the Philippines is one of the easiest countries to travel around when it comes to languages and the lack of language barriers because it was an American colony for a number of years and and there was a huge, there is still a huge American influence in the way people dress, what people eat, even the way they behave and of course in the language because English is the official language. Tagalog is is taught, of course, at schools as well. People speak Tagalog, but English is is also taught and virtually everybody speaks English, so travelers won't have a problem at all. There's a long history of Western conquest. What Magellan arrived there, what, 500 years ago? Yeah. What, what can you actually see from the very early times of the European conquest? There are some wonderful colonial cities. Vigan actually comes to mind. And that's a V-I-G-A-N, Vigan. Correct, V-I-G-A-N, V-I-G-A-N. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it was a very important political and military 
center during the Spanish times and actually Chinese sailing vessels would leave from there full of uh, gold and beeswax and other products that were brought to the coast from the Cordilleras where actually the rice terraces are in that, that region. Okay. Um, and to this day, the, the historical center is beautifully preserved with wooden houses that are Chinese or Mexican in, in architecture and many have been converted into guest houses and museums. And in fact, there are still horse-drawn carriages that, that you can see along the, the cobbled streets. In fact, tourists often take rides in them. Hmm. Um, so that's probably one of the most beautifully preserved Spanish colonial towns. And then there are some pretty exotic things in the countryside that go back to uh, sort of the mix of Christian and indigenous rituals. You've got this, uh, this phenomenon of hanging coffins. You wrote a fascinating mm-hmm. article about that. Can you explain our, the hanging coffins of Sagada? Yep. So in the town of Sagada, which actually was a bit of a bohemian retreat in the 70s, and it attracted many artists and intellectuals who came here for some peace and quiet and to paint and, and write. And, and one of its main attractions are, in fact, these, these hanging coffins that just hang from a cliff face. And they're quite extraordinary. They're only about one meter, so about three feet in length. And the reason being because the, the corpses were buried in the fetal position. And this is a tradition that dates back about 2,000 years. And sadly, it's it's something that's dying out. I understand from your article that people were concerned that the bodies would rot if they put them into the wet ground, uh, that dogs would eat them, or they could be trophies for headhunters. And uh, they decided yep. to hang them on these cliffs, and uh, clearly nobody could get at them when they're halfway up a mountain on a cliff. Correct. Talk about how the Christian beliefs, when the country is, what, 80 or 90% Catholic today, are mixed in with the uh, indigenous rituals that were there before the Christian colonial powers even arrived. Yeah, so fiestas and festivals are, are a huge play a huge part in Philippine culture, and many of them are rooted in Christianity. And the Spanish, when they, they arrived, they introduced a number of fiestas to, to towns and, and various areas, and many, of course, were held in honor of Catholic patron saints, largely to Christianize the country. And a number of them are still, of course, held, for example, the Virgin Mary, uh, for example, the Flores de Mayo Festival in May, which is quite one of the country's largest so a lot of Christian elements have been incorporated in, in these age-old traditions, and Catholic celebrations continue to be celebrated with unbridled enthusiasm, Christmas um, or the Day of the Dead, uh, when everybody goes to the cemeteries to bring you know, gifts and, and food and so on to the dead. Uh, so people do very much celebrate both Christian fiestas and festivals, of course, being a Christian country, but also um, that they continue to celebrate ancient traditions from the islands. Kiki, I would imagine nearly everybody that goes to the Philippines starts in Manila. Is that a good idea? And what would be some of the highlights of your experience in Manila? Because frankly, I I hear about a lot of cities around the world, but I don't hear much about Manila. Manila is actually not as daunting as um, as most people think it is. It's It has some fantastic, fantastic museums and a beautiful historical center. It's called Intramuros, which in Spanish means within the walls. And that was the historic core of the city and, and the seat of the government during the Spanish colonial times. Mm. It was originally built to protect the city from invaders, and it is today a huge tourist attraction. Another major highlight, I guess, is, is Binondo, which is Chinatown, which is said to be the oldest Chinatown in the world. And one of the highlights of Chinatown is this extraordinary Chinese cemetery that was established in the 19th century. Kiki, when you mention that Manila has the oldest Chinatown in the world, it's just a reminder that the country really has a strong melting pot dimension. Of course, there's an indigenous culture, but it's also uh, the result of just centuries of bigger and stronger cultures coming in, Chinese, Spanish, American. Talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about how, how all of these invading cultures shapes the Philippine culture we experience today. 
Well, firstly, in the, the language, uh, like we said before, English is the official language. So that's suddenly one of the biggest legacies of the American times. And people wear Western clothes. If you travel to other countries in Southeast Asia, you will see more traditional dress. Whereas in the Philippines, people largely dress like, like we do in the West. They shop in malls. There are many, many malls in Manila, sort of air-conditioned, very smart malls. And of course, they practice Catholicism. Again, this is a legacy of the Spanish times. And the Filipinos are extremely devout Catholics. And in each, virtually every town, there is a church. And church is also found in the remotest corners of the country. And then you have some little pockets of the country, for example, up in the Cordilleras, where the rice terraces are, the Fugao people who have very ancient traditions that they continue to this day. For example, they place bulol, they're called bulol, they're rice deities that they place in the fields to bring abundant harvest. So people continue to, to observe these ancient traditions mm -hmm. whilst at the same time assimilating cultures from that have been left from the Americans and the Spanish. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Kiki Deer about the Philippines. You know, Kiki, uh, a lot of people just rave about the Chocolate Hills. Take us there, and, and why is that so striking for people? Yeah, the Chocolate Hills are, are certainly one of the main attractions, tourist attractions of the Philippines, and they're conical cast hills that geologists believe were formed from coral and limestone over centuries of, of erosion. And there are, there are over 1,000 of these cone-shaped hills, and they all vary in size. And in fact, when you look at them, and also depending on the season that you are there, they look like little hills of chocolates, hence, of course, the, uh, the name. And Kiki, we've been talking about, you know, Manila and a lot of the mainstream kind of dimensions of the Philippines, but 7,000 islands. Let's finish just with a, a chance to, to go to the one most offbeat and out of the way and remote slices of this culture that you would like us to consider if we're trying to put our travel dreams into reality here when it comes to the Philippines. So when I was last in the Philippines, I visited Batanes, which is the country's remotest island province. And they only get about 30 or 40 foreign travelers per year. So literally just a, you know, just a handful. And it's quite an extraordinary place. It has very little in common with the, with the rest of the, uh, of the country. The language is different. The food is different. The islands look completely different. The topography is very different. While the rest of the Philippines is largely, you know, white sand beaches uh, with gorgeous clear waters. Here there are these rugged cliffs and, and very green, green hills uh, with meadows where there are buffalo and horses and, and cattle. And it, in fact, it reminded me a lot of island and island sort of jagged coastline. Hmm. And it's very interesting. You could take a boat to an island called Sabtang, which is a very quiet little place where, where houses are built of stone. And the reason for this is because they're, they're built of stone to withstand the, the destructive force of typhoons that very often hit these islands. That sounds like a, a way to cap your Philippine experience, if you can get there. Absolutely. And if a family goes there, they're going to bump up the total amount of tourism to the, <laughs> to the Batanas Islands by a substantial amount. Kiki Deer, <laughs> thanks so much for your uh, insight into the Philippines. And... Uh, Congratulations on your book, Journey Through the Philippines. Thank you. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Thanks for studio help this week to the BBC's Wogan House in London and WFRD at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. There's more online at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. 
Europe through the back door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.